Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Surf Stories, the podcast brought to you by the Florida Surf Film Festival and Surfing's Evolution and Preservation Foundation. I'm your host, John Brooks. With me, as always, is co-host Kevin Miller. Kevin, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Yeah. What a special treat today. We're, uh, we're going transcontinental. We did a last-minute uh, pitch, and he accepted. I was very happy to hear that Mikey Corker, the director of Savage Waters, would join us for a podcast and promote this upcoming screening we have on february 4th here at atlantic center for the arts yeah i was excited because i you know i've seen the movie obviously we're getting ready to screen it and uh i was thrilled about the movie but then uh mikey just turned out to be an absolute delight it's rare where they turn out to be the opposite (laughs) it is true that's true i don't think we even had that happen before no we haven't but he was just so energetic and entertaining and a great storyteller and he really was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he not, is. not to give too much away in the movie, but man, February 4th, you really, you got to come out and, and see Savage Waters. It's uh it's just a fantastic movie. And, uh, the Knight family, I mean, legendary, like unicorns. <laughs> I mean, they're like just, medieval people living in modern day times. Yes. Like exploring the world. hundred percent. You know, it's kind of a, he can hold a scene. He can hold the camera. You know what I mean? Matt Knight is the basic yeah. star. I mean, Andrew Cotton plays a, uh, otherwise known as Cotty, plays a big character in this uh, movie as well. So a good lineup coming up. Mikey did a really good job of walking us through where he's been in his life and career before he made it to this project. Yeah. And dude, another filmmaker that didn't go like get a formal education for it. Yeah. A lot of DIY in that industry. Yep. Cause it seems like hard work is king and you learn on the job with that kind of thing. Not a lot that the teachers can teach you in the, in the classroom about putting together and editing and shooting an incredible story. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like a, a filmmaker or a director has an eye for what they like. And like you said, you can't teach that, but, um, dang, Mikey has a good eye and, uh, yeah, he does. we're, we're excited to show his film and 
so yeah, we got a nice little background uh, about where he came from and kind of how he worked his way up. And then uh, we got a couple gems of stories out of him. And so, yeah, enjoy our chat with Mikey Corker and then come out on February 4th and meet him. He's going to be here. Mikey and yeah, Mike, Mikey Corker, um, which I'm, I'll admit I learned just now, uh, originally South from South Africa. Um, when, uh, when did you make that transition? Like, did you grow up in South Africa, move to England later? Um, yeah, so I think, well, I, I grew up in South Africa and then I started traveling like a lot of, you know, young surfers do in my twenties and, um, and weirdly, I found myself in England. I actually found myself in London, kind of mm. kicking the streets, looking for some work, and but just feeling like a total fish out of water. Surfer's paradise, London. Surf- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you and Peter uh, Hamblin. <laughs> yeah, but he's still there, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah he is. I, I, I just couldn't gel with London. Like I wasn't. I was staying with a bunch of South African friends. They were living in a in a in a house about twenty people, just working really shitty jobs. Can, can we swear? Sorry. Oh swearing. yeah, yeah, Fuck yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Everyone was working their kind of shitty nine to five Monday to Friday job, and then just getting out on weekends and getting absolutely hammered. And I did it for a couple of weeks, but I just I just was I couldn't see myself doing it any longer. And um. And I remembered in the back of my mind, two people had told me about Croyd Bay, this place in North Devon in England, like this beautiful beach with waves and stuff. And I woke up one morning, like after two weeks in London, and I was like, I've got to get out of here. And I, 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 I basically hopped on a train and went down to North Devon. And from day one, I just fell in love and the waves were pumping. There was sunshine and I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe I was in England. Hmm. And um and uh, I spent the summer working there, loved it, got work straight away in the pub and washing dishes or something. And um, and then met a whole bunch of people who were the same age as me. And um, and all summer, all I heard was, oh, where are you going in the winter? Are we going here? Are we going there? People were going, like, traveling. Everybody was just there to work the summer. It's a summer holiday town. And everybody was planning on their winter travel because the town shuts down. So and And a bunch of people that I met... We're going to the Canary Islands. So I just jumped in with them and went on this crazy adventure to the Canaries and went surfing and camping there for three months and then spent all the money I'd made washing dishes and came back. And, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and then just, I, I think I just started, I just kind of ended up in a bit of a cycle where I was just doing summers over there. Can I jump and in? That, and, yeah. Yeah, summer. Okay, I was just going to jump in and say, did you, so you grew up in South Africa. Did you develop your uh, surfing skills and your uh, your film school, or what was it that led you down that uh, path? And then how did that? I know you're working odds and ends in London, but uh, yeah, give us yeah. the that yeah. Story. So so I, I I was sort of doing this like little routine of doing where I was I was bouncing between. So I, started, I was working in England, Australia, but and then and going back to South Africa. But I was doing all like low paid menial work. It was just summertime work, whatever. All I was really concerned about was saving money to go surfing. So I could so that it was the surf trips in between. So that was that was the most important thing. But at the time, uh, a load of my friends were working in the film industry in South Africa. And and it always every time I spoke to them, it seemed like a really exciting industry. Um, they were always doing different things, and it just seemed like I was kind of drawn to to the industry, but not because of like 
I'd gone to film school or anything like that. It just it, every time I spoke to my friends who were involved, they were just doing fun stuff, and every day was different. So uh, at some point, I went back to South Africa um, in between the travels, and I was broke, and I, I, I applied for a job through a, um, a film production company to go to work on commercials in Cape Town as a runner. So you basically go on set as a runner. You've you've got no um, you're not affiliated to any department. You work for whoever needs you. And actually, that at the time that they weren't paying, they just they said to me, "We don't actually need anybody, but come on, we've got a shoot. Come along if you make a good impression, you might be able to get work. We might hire you again in the future." So, um, so I decided to make a really good impression, and I just like worked my ass off. <laughs> where, where I think the other runners just like went and sat in their car or something because I like anybody anytime anybody needed anything, I was like, "I'll get it, I'll get it." Da, da, da. It was actually crazy. I, I think I worked. It was a in in a 48 hour period i worked for 45 hours wow that's great so um it was just a nuts situation but and i basically left there like almost like in a wheelchair but uh, hey they offered me some more work <laughs> so yeah, that, is, that is such a familiar story that i've got to relay i try to relay to my kids on occasion my my oldest two i don't really have to bother cuz they're they're weird driven people but like my 20 year old i'm like if you if you really like something you know go that route where you just pay your dues, even if you don't make any money. And if you really like it and you show up um, and, and you really produce, it's going to be a matter of time before you, you know, and they take a liking to your output. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that I like about the film industry. Not so much what I do now, but maybe still to, to, to a degree, but there's, there's, your path is up to you and the ladder's up to you. But like, you know, I, I stayed as a runner for six months and then I decided that I was going to jump into the camera department. Um, and you, you can be a runner for as long as you want. Some people stay runners forever, but I decided after six months, I'd already done a lot of work. I, I knew that I had a work ethic. I didn't feel like I needed to be a runner to prove that to anyone. Yeah. I wanted to kind of like start heading into a department and I, I chose the camera department. Um and I, I did a course in, in Cape Town, which is a camera assistance course. And then at the end of the course, that a movie was starting and the producers of the movie said that they had a position for a camera trainee. And the tough thing about getting into the camera department versus the other departments is that nobody wants to hire you without experience. Right. It's a chicken or the egg situation. Yeah. And nobody trusts you because in the camera department, if you make a mistake, it's always going to be costly. <laughs> or, or you know, or time-consuming, and I mean, I guess those two things are interlinked in in the world of production. But um, if you haven't dealt with lenses or film stock or whatever, it, as soon as you make a mistake, it's going to cost the production a load of money. So, but no, nobody wants to touch you. Yeah. So the only way to get in is actually just to 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 or to get experience. The only edge you've got is to be free, because you know. So you go okay, I, like I'll, I'll come on as if. Uh, uh, as a trainee, I wasn't going to get paid, but I was going to get time on set. And once you got time, you've hopefully learned enough that you start becoming valuable. So, so I did my, sense. so I did my, I did a, a month or six weeks on a movie at, in the camera department as a trainee, and um, which gave me really good experience. And at the end of that six weeks, the team that I was working with, they were a really busy team, a camera team in South Africa. They were doing all the biggest features at the time. And they were like, well, we spent so much time training you up. You might as well come with us to the next movie. And, and then I was away. So I, I think nice. I did like six feature films back to back with the same team. And by the end of that, I was like, okay, I've got, you know, 
I, I know more than I did when I started. <laughs> and I've got some good connections. How old are you, Mikey? Uh, 47. 47, yeah. John and I are both like in our early 50s here, 51, 52, or 51, 50. Um, but I I feel, you know, with your film stock comment and, and things like that, that it was obviously much more costly back in the day to have an, uh, uh, a rookie make a mistake on a on a shot um, as opposed to now. It's like, I don't know, just reset and, you know, totally. but... Yeah. So anyway, that's exciting. And uh, obviously South Africa was your springboard career wise, but then um, you had, you already done a bit of traveling and menial jobs when you went and then, then you went back to South Africa, you got that experience. And then what, where's the career go from there? Um, so I finished the movie and it was just, I'd done like a whole lot of movies back to back and I was feeling actually a little bit burnt out. I also realized like those big feature films with like huge crews and that they're really heavy. And I was a camera assistant. My official title was uh, clapper loader. So I'm the guy with the board, like scene three, take three, clap the board. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, but the more, the, the the part of the job that carries more responsibility is the loading part. So it's clapper loader. The loading is you in the dark room with film stock. We're shooting on 35 millimeter film. So I'd have to load up the magazines, make sure that the cameras all had film. And then I was also like the film's accountant. So there's a lot of paperwork every day. So they're kind of like, they, they're quite, it's the, responsibilities um heavy people come to south africa because they aren't all the unions like they are in the states and that you work right. crazy hours the cameras roll for 12 hours a day minimum so you know you're there an hour and a half before sometimes four hours afterwards and you're working on a six-day cycle or six-day week for three or four months so Jeez. so and and i was with a busy team so we're just doing movie 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 and when I finished my, the last one was full of problems and I was just like, what am I doing? Like, I love this, but you know, I'm not like, I'm not surfing. I'm feeling unhealthy. Like, do I really want to be doing this? I started having these like doubts about, I love elements of the job, but also it wasn't creative. I wasn't even allowed to look through the eyepiece. I'm like, I'm keeping <laughs> the, the, the real creatives. Um, I'm keeping their cameras running and I'm like making them cups of tea and keeping, you know, but it wasn't creative at all for me. So I was kind of like, I got to a bit of a point where I was like, okay, what am I doing? And anyway, like I often do when I get to a situation where I need like time, space to think, I like, I end up going to Indonesia with my girlfriend, going on a holiday and just going, okay, I just want to forget about that. I want to go surfing. I just want to kind of get in touch with, you know, just have some time, like some time out and a breather. And I bumped into a whole bunch of my friends from England that I hadn't seen for years because I've been in South Africa working in the film industry and then ended up kind of um, going back to England because I was like, oh, yeah, I, like, I loved it there. Let's let's go back for a summer. And my girlfriend at the time, had, well, who's now my wife, hadn't been there and I told her loads about it. So we ended up going back to England and I ended up working in a surf shop and just having a total change of scenery, a change of pace. But at the same time, there was around the time digital cameras were becoming like huge. And I was like, I really kind of still love like this idea of film production, da, da, da. But, and I realized like I can just buy a digital camera I can start learning to edit. I don't need to be working on a huge set. Like the, the the digital like revolution democratized filmmaking in such a positive way. And and so I could spend like, you know, a thousand pounds and buy a good camera and, and software. And I realized like I don't, you know, I don't need to be making people like cups of tea for the rest of my life before I can start shooting. I can just start shooting. Hmm. So I was working in a surf shop, starting starting to learn to edit in my spare time going out just shoot out you know i love surfing i've always loved surfing it was just natural for me to start shooting surfing because that's what i'm passionate about and i could go out and start you know shooting clips of my friends surfing and 
you know, figure out how to edit these little movies. And I guess that's that's how that started for me. Good. Um, uh, shout out to the boys at the surf shop. Where which surf shop was it in London? Uh, so it was in North Devon. It's called. It was called Loosefit. Unfortunately, okay. it's not there anymore. But okay. Yeah, really, really cool surf shop. Uh, yeah, I love. I love being there. Yeah, that's great. All right, cool. So uh, I, I just want to take a moment yeah. to document the fact that no problem has ever not been solved by going away to Indo. <laughs> I'm just Never. I'm just putting it out there. It's a it solid plan. A, solid solves plan. a lot of problems. I, I, I think <laughs> to might cause a lot of problems. Uh, well, it's, it solves more problems than it causes. Absolutely. I'm, I, yeah. You know, I, and I, I, so it's become also like my thing that I celebrate. Like actually, when I finished Savage Waters. I done tools and went to Indonesia. It's my, it's just sort of like, it's my little escape. I love it there. I just, you know, just go surfing and just like, it's such an easy, just relaxed pace of life and perfect waves. And, you know, just, I'm just, I'm always just like, yeah, I've always been a fan. I think I've been, well, I've done like seven trips or eight trips now. And every time I just fall more and more in love. Nice. Do you just hang in Bali or like, are you cruising around different places? Nah, I've been, the last few trips I've been going to the mentors. And uh, yeah, South what? Sumatra, Java. Um, I haven't been to Bali for a while, actually. Um, yeah. yeah. Actually, the last time I went to Bali, I vowed I'd never go to Bali again. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's the yeah. That's right. We got a, We have a good friend that lives there, and yeah, same thing. It's it's quite chaotic, as from what I understand. But yeah, I love it. But I don't know. I, thing is, I don't have, now. I, I've realized as I get older, I'm in that situation where I've got less time and more money. And when I was younger, you could go on these, like, I could go get lost in Sumatra for like a month and then go to Bali for like five days. And now it's like, I want, it's like a business trip, but for surfing. I'm like, get in, I want to get surfing. <laughs> and so, like, I find, I, I like Bali, but I just, you know, if I just want to go and get some good waves, beat the crowds, it's not, it's not the place for me at the moment. Nice. Although I'm keen to take my kids there. I think it'd be a fun trip with the family. Yeah. So. It's a it's an eye opener at the very least. There's more people on that spot of land, I think, uh, per capita than you know a lot of places on Earth. Anyway, it just seems like most people have this impression that Bali is going to be a real jungle, laid back life, and then you get there and you see all the traffic and everything, and it's just it's kind of it's kind of a you know a culture shock when you realize that it is a thriving, very busy place, and I mean you can get away from crowds and everything but yeah anyway so uh love indonesia and uh what a great break for your uh your career you have kids how old are your kids i've got twin boys they are going to be six. Oh man two days actually on the second of february so two days before our screening oh nice <laughs> wow that's wild oh yeah so we have I have a six-year-old girl and an eight-year-old boy as well i went in for round two oh, well. and uh yeah so that's uh that's pretty cool. You might meet the you might meet them when you're here. So none, um, none and, for me. So I get to go to Indonesia more than anything. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I thought I was going to be an empty nester by now, but I went in again because uh, uh, I don't know. I love them. They're great. But uh, yeah. all right. So you're uh, you're coming uh, let me over. Jump, let me jump in for a sec, Kevin. So you got your you're back in Devon. You're working at the surf shop. You bought your mm -hmm. camera. You're figuring out some editing stuff. And then what would you to say is your first break into like where you feel like, okay, I can do this for a living. Yeah. Um, so there was a, there's a guy was, he still is a friend of mine, Richard Gregory. And uh, he, he had a little small production company and he could see that I was really keen 
I was like, you know, just throwing, putting every hour that I had into into it, like especially learning how to edit. That was a big thing for me. Um, and so he was like, well, you know, you can come and work with me. And, you know, again, it was just like he didn't have that much. He, could, he was paying me, but it was just like, you know, he was just kind of helping me out. But he sent me on a trip to Ireland with Cotty. <laughs> and um, and, he, and actually that was the trip where that sort of was a real start. So many things happened for me on that trip where – Basically, it was, you know, go to Ireland. The, the, there wasn't much of a brief. It was like, Cotty was in Ireland with another guy called Lyndon Wake, who was also from North Devon, who's now living in America. And they were just spending spending the winter out in Ireland. And, and I'd never been before, so I didn't really know what to expect. But the idea was just go and, you know, document some sessions or something. So I went to Ireland and, um, and I had this crappy little camera. I can't even remember. I probably didn't even have, like, a long lens or something. But it was us, all, you know, it was just really Give, give basic. us a timeline. What year is this? Uh, this would have been around about 2010, I think. Okay. Yeah. Or 2009. Uh, so around about then. And um, and so I realized straight, like quite early into this trip in Ireland that I was really impressed, like super impressed with the dedication and the commitment that Cotty and Lyndon were putting into going surfing. I never realized Ireland is such a hard place. Like, it's winter it's freezing cold it's dark they were getting up at like five in the morning every morning to get in the van where everything's icy if you leave anything it's everything's just icy and cold they're putting their wet wetsuits from the day before in their van and they were just going driving around like island's an amazing coastline but you can drive like this you've been there kevin i mean it's just nooks and crannies and that's it's the beauty of the place but you like and but they were they were putting in a lot of miles and working really hard to get waves. And, and the other thing about Ireland, it's not with these like perfectly groomed swells. It's like glimpses of magic in between the most horrendous weather you've ever experienced in your <laughs> life. And they and they were working really hard to put themselves in the right place at the right time for those little glimpses of magic. And I, I didn't really have the gear to shoot the surfing amazing, but I, I realized straight away like I was so impressed with what they were going through to put themselves in it. And that's for me, I was like, well, that's, that's the story. This is, I wasn't really seeing anything in the media around or like the films, the surf films I was watching. Like, I grew up watching the search movies with like, you know, these boats in the mentor wires with like, you know, pro, and there was no backstory, like the trials and tribulations of what actually happened to get there. And, but, right. and I, but I, I was so drawn to the, like what Cotty and Lyndon were doing daily just to go, just to go surfing. And I started like just naturally just documenting that side of things. And I realized like that's what I'm more interested in, and that's what I would like to show people. Like I came away going, yeah, okay, here's some footage of them surfing, but you should have seen what happened on the way, or like you know <laughs> things they had to deal with to, to get that. And 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 I've always just been more drawn to the story, like the backstory or the story behind the story or the context. You know, I think um, you know, and I realized like those amazing images that they're, they're out there, and I like shooting them. You know, good action clips and that, but it's the human stories and the stories behind the stories. Uh, that that I'm always just way more interested in. Yeah, so, I mean that that's that's what yeah, makes so. films watchable. You know, it's like as much as we all love surfing, like you can only watch surf porn for so long. Where you're just like just wave waves and music. It's like they're great, but yeah, I mean the thing that's nice about films like that and and films like Savage Waters that we're getting ready to show at the festival is that it, it you can watch that whether you surf or not or no matter what your ability level is, there's something that's relatable um, in so many different ways. And so, yeah, that, 
to me anyways, that's what makes uh, a film like yours and, and films like that documentary style films. So watchable um, is that human element where you're telling that human story with, with, yeah. with respect to the time and a place for uh, surf porn, obviously with uh, you know, with a lot of surf porn, I found too, that it almost becomes like a part of the room in the background where mm -hmm. you've got a little bit of music playing and you've got, it sets the atmosphere, but also, you, you know, if you're, if you're getting hyped to go surfing, that's, it's a great spot. But again, the, the, the survivability, the long-term, uh, the long lasting approach or, or not approach, but effect that, uh, the stories have and finding the right stories is obviously always going to be your challenge, Mikey. And it seems like you found it in Savage Waters for sure. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, you know, I grew up in an in a age like, you know, you guys, I'm, I'm not that far behind you guys, but I, I grew up like my surf movies. I, I You know, when I think of surf movies when I was a kid, it was a VHS tape. Yeah. And we'd get like one new one a year or something. I remember, you know, all the Billabong movies like, and uh, was it Pump and Filthy Habits and whatever. And we'd watch that thing to death. And, but it was the same, you know, the same tape, but there wasn't really much story, but I just, it was like, um, uh, and then, and then, you know, the momentum generation films and all of that, but it was just, you know, full wall-to-wall -wall action. It was amazing. I loved it. And it was perfect for that stage of my life then, you know, that's all I needed. I wanted yeah. to get amped up to go surf. I would, we would sit and watch it and then go surf and try and copy yeah, the people. Exactly. Who, you know, that's what they were there for, but you know, I, I wonder if kids now, they probably wouldn't be interested in the movies that I make because they're like, I just want the surf porn. I don't know. But, um, so You'd be surprised, though. They're, they're, I mean, our festival has a, a wide range of uh, of fans that come and they're, you know, groms and kids and um, beginning surfers to, you know, the, the best guys that are coming out of here, the, you know, the Geiselman brothers and uh, the Glenn brothers and, you know, guys that are at the, the top of their game, they're, they're, they're just as interested as well. So I, I think there's a shift and, and I'm the same way. Like I, I can remember watching pump until the tape broke, yeah. you know, but because there was nothing else to watch, nobody was making <laughs> films like yours. And so it was, you know, I, I take what I could get as far as, you know, surf films, but I used to, I used to watch all the old ESP surfer magazines from ESPN. I recorded probably a third or two thirds of them. And, I go back and watch the Costa Rica episode and just uh, burn through those old contests. I think I watched the 83 OP pro where <laughs> yeah. current, where current beats Joey Baran in the final with that unreal, like re-entry on the, anyway. So I have like all that stuff too comes in play and it's like the stories that get told now with, you said the democratization of uh, the equipment and the industry itself, uh, they're, they're just so much better than what we watched back then for the most part. And it's very helpful to have a platform to bring people together and watch them and talk about them too. Um, because if you don't, and that's why we started this thing kind of is if you don't have that platform, it's like, uh, they just, another movie comes and goes and we really find a lot of value added to the experience for the filmmaker, but also the fans like to have you there is a huge thing uh, for the people that get to sit down and talk to you, listen to the Q&A. And, uh, and in fact, it's a huge thing for me. I don't really care that much about other people. I'm, I'm so into it. that I'm glad other people enjoy it for sure. But no, it's 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 a lot of fun. And 
Uh, it sounds like you've got uh, a few cold water seasons in uh, Ireland that laid the groundwork maybe for where you were headed in your career. And I will say that the Richie Fitzgerald's book that just came out, it's called cold water Eden um, is uh, very good at describing those early mornings and what it goes into the, just the, the nerves and the preparation and the cold and, uh, and then you get to pay off, you know, when that happens, that's always nice. So yeah, it's pick us, pick us back up where you left off. Yeah, I, I mean, just on that note, I think we're in, we're in a really interesting time because we the internet's an interesting place. I mean, the fact that there's, we, there's such a, um, a, not a deluge, but there's so much content out there that it's, it's, I think as a filmmaker, it's quite our challenge now is to kind of fight through the noise to get your film to stand out. And, you know, the fact is it's the internet, so how we all communicate, it's, you know, we all, this is, uh, this is the meeting point. This is the sort of grand junction of mankind. <laughs> yeah, we are, you know what I mean? And so, so you, you know, as a, as a sort of filmmaker or, you know, any creative, you want people to sort of resonate with your work, but you have to get it in front of people. So it's an interesting time, but I think we also, I mean, every day I go, you know, all every day I could just click on my social media and I'm seeing like amazing images of people surfing. Uh, um, it takes a lot for me to really like that to really like like slow down and watch a film especially a surf film like I've become almost like not cynical but um, I, I don't watch that many surf films myself like there's so few things that really appeal to me uh, I find I need the, the human story I need the human element it's got to be strong to keep me at the screen otherwise it is just like a bit of sort of surf porn but i also i also think we're we in an interesting time now where we need where we need to add context because of this you know there's a lot of sort of like um i don't know it's are we living in like a, a fake fake news sort of a skeptical society but i find like when there's context when we have these situations where you can talk about your film or or give context and meet people in an audience and chat i think that having that having that that time where you can have real sort of one on one and 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 add context with an audience is is really it's amazing. So yeah, thanks for keeping that going. I think I think these kind of conversations are really important. I love it. I just there's curiosity gaps in my life as a surfer, and the curiosity gaps are things like what was it like for the momentum generation growing up for each one of them and boom i get momentum generation from uh the, you know the two directors that don't even surf and uh don't have any clue what you know so it's it, it's those kind of curiosity gaps like holy shit the savage islands i've never heard about those uh that's like we're south of madeira i mean maybe until i watched it a second time i really got a good idea of where to look and um it's just those are the curiosity gaps like oh i've never even thought about that because i've always spun the globe and i've always been looking at google earth just like most of us and wonder if there's waves there so this is such a, a phenomenal premise for your project but i don't want to get too ahead of ourselves because i want to kind of hear where you went from ireland and and what you decided to do after that stage of your early career yeah um so i started i i like let me think. So, you know, I started making these little films and I spent, I, I was still, I was spending a lot of time in Ireland. And then um, I guess the films just got, you know, we as you progress, you kind of like, the other big challenge with a lot of filmmakers is, is like 
convincing people to give you money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 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 you know, and it's like a trust thing. I think it'll probably be like, a, you know, I'm sure that's every filmmaker, no matter what, I'm, you know, I'm sure uh, what's it, Cameron who made Avatar probably says the same thing. Like, oh, no one trusts me with their budget. And he's just, made, <laughs> you know, but um, anyway, so I think I, like basically it's like a, I saw every film as a stepping stone. And so, you know, I, I started making films for free and then you start like trying to get people to give you money. And and then you just sort of, you know, and the film gets, the films get a bit bigger. And I think I just, I've just basically just seen every film as a stepping stone to, to you know a, a better film I always you know it's for me it's always just been everything I just see as part of a process you learn it's a, it's a every film's just a learning experience um and and then you you know and you take some you you get paid and then you like go buy some more gear and you 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 learn some things and it's like this constant like evolution so so um anyway so I was doing a lot I was going to Ireland a lot and loving it I still I still love it it's one of my favorite places on earth and then um and then it was like I guess one of those like you know being in the right place at the right time. But um, Katia and myself did a did a series for this company called Epic TV that are based in France, and they did at the time they were doing a lot of climbing films, and they wanted to do some surfing stuff, and they we did a series for them called Behind the Lines, and that was um, basically just me for fun- the record, real quick. I'll just uh, make sure everybody who knows uh, who doesn't know who Kati is as uh, as uh, Mikey pronounces him is Andrew Cotton. He's a big wave surfer featured in 100 foot wave on the, or is that the name of the HBO show with the 100 yeah, foot yeah, wave? Yeah, 100 so, foot wave. Yeah, 100 foot. So he's featured in that route very heavily and uh, has made a career out of riding big waves uh, in partnership, you know, his Red Bull's a sponsor and the, uh, he features heavily in uh, Mikey's background, it sounds like, right? Yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah. So we kind of like, you know, we kind of like climbed up the ladder together, really, you know, it was really symbiotic relationship. It was really, really cool. And, um, we, we did a series for Epic TV called behind the lines. And that was like my first, like at the time it felt huge, you know, (laughs) I can't even remember what the budget was, but it just, it felt like they're really actually trusting us. For me at the time, it felt like, okay, this, you know, this, it felt like a big step and it was, uh, it, it, we had some success we won an award and and i was like okay like you know now it felt like um we were rolling and Cotty got his sponsorship with red bull soon after that you know i would like to think that that series really helped him kind of get noticed or it definitely helped him in his path to some degree and um he got his sponsorship with red bull and we and quite soon after that we did a project for red bull and i think a lot of um it, it, for me it just feels like when you're trying to make it it's like it's a bit like a snowball effect you can't go to push it but it's up to you you got to be the one pushing it but then you start getting a bit of momentum it starts you know getting a bit of size and then you carry on pushing it and and that's just kind of how it's been feeling a little bit um but all, all in a really positive way and then you know i did i did like I think I did like five projects for Red Bulls, like quite soon after one, one after the other. And, and the way I kind of attack my approach is I don't usually um, have big crews or anything. I can't, I'm a bit of a one man band. I'll, I'll like hiring people on days when I need them extra cameras or whatever, or specialist skills. But so I end up, you know, I'm an editor as well. So all those projects, I was kind of doing a bit of everything. So they, so a project could be like all consuming for a period of time, like a year you know, 18 months or whatever. So, um, which is, um, that's just, I, I'm pretty happy with that sort of situation in the past, but it's, you know, now it's a different story, but that was then. Um, 
but yeah, I did some really nice projects for Red Bull. And I think a lot of this game um, is about relationships. And I just, I happened to, you know, I built good relationships with the people who were working at Red Bull at the time. And, um, and they, they could trust me and we could, we developed a kind of creative rapport, which was really good. And, you know, we, not you know, like a bit of a shorthand, but they, they could trust me. And we, we just had a good sort of um, creative relationship. And so they, you know, they, they sent some work my way and it was, it worked out really well. And then um, uh, I think the last, yeah, I did a nice project for Red Bull in Nazare. And then it was soon after that I started working on the 100 Foot Wave series, actually, with Kati. Okay, gotcha. Oh, no, actually, then... we, we, did a, we did another couple projects. Um, another Red Bull project, which is actually the kickstart to Savage Waters. Uh, there, we did a project called Beneath the Surface, which, gotcha. which was the yeah. first time that um, uh, we had with the three of us with Matt Knight, who's one of our main characters in Savage Waters, Kati and myself had worked together. So we did a project for Red Bull. So it was a part of, you know, continuing on from that line of doing work for Red Bull. We did a project uh, where, where um, Kati was looking to surf a, a giant wave off the coast of Ireland in Donegal Bay. And um, and he needed somebody with a boat. He needed he, he basically needed support in the water. The, the waves breaks quite far offshore. It's a bit like Cortez, but not so far out. But in terms of... I, I know that wave. Okay, yeah. And um and so he asked Matt Knight, a skipper, a sailor, skipper, surfer, you know, just human extraordinaire to help him. And and that was the first project that Kati, Matt, and myself worked together to deliver for Red Bull. And and it was also on that project where we were started hatching plans for Savage Waters. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. Free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, 
This is the deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not as uh, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Yeah, I was going to ask you, like, did was that a story that Matt brought up to you about the idea with the book and and that? Yeah. yeah. So while we while we were working on that project called Beneath the Surface for for Red Bull, we were we were in Ireland and um and and during that time, Matt Matt's good sailing buddy Shebs, one of his longtime sailing buddies, had given him this book, this this treasure hunter's journal, published in eighteen ninety one or whatever it was. And said to him, you should read the story. It's this crazy adventure story. And, and the reason that Shebs gave it to Matt is because the author of this of this treasure hunter's book, this journal, had the same surname. The author's name was E.F. Knight. So Shebs had said, oh, this guy, he's got the same surname as you. And it's this crazy adventure story about this treasure hunter. Like, you know, haha, you should read it. So yeah. Matt was reading Matt was reading this, this old book. Uh, you know, it's just like a wild tale of treasure hunting and, you know, you know, really romantic era of of sort of exploration, and um, and he stumbled across in this book there was this passage about this mystical wave breaking off this island in the Atlantic, and Shebs didn't know about this passage, or he hadn't it hadn't sort of hit home. But Shebs doesn't surf, but Matt, being a surfer, read this passage, and even though it was in this flowery speech of like eighteen ninety one or whatever, the description is amazing. Like as a surfer, you're going to read it, and you're just going to picture this amazing green barrel exploding on a reef and Matt was straight away like whoa we have to go find this like this it's too good like like I've been given this book this is passage like you know we 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 just have to go find it so straight away we while we were on this project he said I know I know what we're doing next we're gonna go find this wave let's just let's just go we just go you've got cameras there's surfboards like let's go what are we waiting for I love it. I absolutely Did, love it. What a great start to a project. Has he put any effort into seeing if the author of the book is related to him in any way? Uh, our producer, Ghislaine, has has done all the sort of background research on that, and we don't, we don't think there's any direct relationship. Gotcha. In the, in the family Sounds tree. pretty familiar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's yeah, just swash, say swash, swashbuckling swashbuckling adventure i mean ad- yeah. adventurous uh I, I think there's a lot of crossover for sure yeah it's just brilliant and again without without giving away too much in the movie matt is i mean he he looks like a, a movie character that you like made in a lab like it's sheer perfection if you know if you if you were if you had to cast someone as the salty you know sea captain surfer like you, you yeah you, you couldn't do that any better in a in a scientific project oh, no, he's Kevin, a he unicorn great. absolutely <laughs> I, mean, I mean how do you not make a movie about matt knight i mean I know, like, right? yeah it's just like he's just a movie waiting to be happened like the hard thing is choosing which parts of matt life which parts of matt's life we could include in our movie because <laughs> yeah. obviously the movie it's set in the present day it's this adventure story and I, and I won't give too much away because i really want everybody listening to go and watch the film but you know the the, the the majority of the movie is set in the present day but i wanted to tell the story of who these people are because they've got they've led such interesting 
lives with so many stories along the way. And Matt's been, you know, since the early, you know, since his teens has just been on wild adventures. And when I met, I mean, that's what I've always just admired about him and just thought he's a unique human being where you would think that the majority of people would choose to go left. He chooses to go right. You know, he's, he's not, he's just so unique and just so he'll, he'll never choose the easy option but he's had the wildest life and so many <laughs> tales of adventure. And, um, and and the more I get to know him, the more I just find find out even more more about him and, and his stories and, you know, and Suzanne, his wife and, and the kids, you know, they've just, they've just lived a wild life full of adventure. And it's just, for me, it's just, just like a movie begging to, to happen. So are you saying um, that he would make a more interesting podcast interview than us? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> he would make a more interesting podcast interviewee than me, I think. Not not necessarily you guys. Oh no, I'm sure. No, uh, yeah. yeah, but if you, if you can get him great. on, if you can get him on, get him on. He's they're in Panama right now, preparing the boat for the next leg of their journey. They're traveling around the world. Amazing. Wow! Wow! So and, and he's got his. Uh, it's the first time they've just had their their first grandchild. Who's um so their their daughter Jemima and boyfriend Marcus are, are coming to the boat soon with the with the grandchild Rowan. And so it's the, it'll be three generations of the Knight family on their boat. So this is ah, it's amazing. This is their their dream playing out. I think this is what they've been heading towards since since the okay. beginning. Find that out where they're movie. going. I'll meet them there. That is a movie. <laughs> and uh, you'll bring the little uh, soundboard with you, John, and get a. Uh, yeah, a I'll nice bring the soundboard. We'll do the podcast, the whole family at once. <laughs> I think we can write that off. Yeah, yeah. That's a work trip. That's a work trip. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, right, well, well this spe seems... speaking of stories, that, uh, you know, the, the title of our podcast is called Surf Stories. And uh, so we always like to, after we do a little catch up with our guests, such as we've done with you, we like to uh, have you maybe dig into the can and uh, pull out a few gems and uh, it can be, you know, from the past, it can be from the present. It can be scary, funny, horrific, all of the above. Um, so uh, without putting you too much on the spot, and yeah. we can edit out the long pause. <laughs> um, we we often yeah, do. Yeah, give us, give us a couple gems uh, that come to mind. Well, I, I think I want to talk about it. Um, something that happened while we were shooting Savage Waters, and it was it's, it's something that's never made the movie, because um, we, we we sort of got into the edit, and I think you get you you know I think every every director every filmmaker is going to have this issue where you just can't put everything in your film, and and you got to make some really sort of traumatic decisions, <laughs> sure, and, and and sort of certain things hit the cutting room floor, but. Um, and I just want to you say that I, I really have to give all praise to our, to my editor Jordan Montmany, who who kind of you know really sort of helped helped me with these decisions because you know he, he was he's super experienced and, and and it would have been a much harder process without having somebody you know another person to bounce off and and sort of help me with these decisions. But anyway, we we made a decision to not put a scene in the movie, which I I still like you know I, at the time I thought it was going to be the opening scene in the movie. Mm -hmm. And um, but I'd like to just mention it because you know <laughs> I feel like it should be said. But um, basically we were on our second trip to the to the Savage Islands, so we had already been there once. We hadn't found the ways we we're looking for, and um, and we were we were we were going back, and this was our our second second attempt, and um, and there was a big swell in the way, and we were we had, we had arrived in the daytime. And the swell hadn't arrived. The swell hadn't turned up yet. And um, 
And we made a decision, or Matt made a decision. To be honest, Matt was making all the decisions. None of, very few people on the boat were had any like you know experience in sailing, or we didn't. I, I definitely didn't know anything what I was doing. So I was just you know Matt's just just making all the decisions for us, and you know it's a huge <laughs> responsibility. But anyway, we Matt made a decision. We're gonna we're gonna anchor uh, in a in an anchorage, a tiny little bay on the lee side of our island, like a lee side of the swell where the swell would arrive. But you have to think these these islands are tiny, and when the swell, we hadn't really anticipated, or maybe we hadn't, we just hadn't really thought about it, or I hadn't thought about it. When the swell arrives and it wraps around a tiny island, suddenly the, your protected lee side isn't really that protected. Nah, and not we, at all. We were, we were we were in a bay, and we were on it. We were on two anchors, and so you you basically chained to the bottom, and the swell pull like wraps in overnight, and the next thing. This whole bay is turns into like the biggest washing machine, this cauldron you can imagine. And the boat is creaking and just spinning around. Like every time a set breaks, oh. there's, there's waves smashing up on the rocks. The boat's spinning around. It's noisy. Um, uh, Matt, Matt just stayed out on deck the whole night. He was basically on anchor watch. He was like, he got into surgeon mode. He was just really, really calm. At the time, I didn't know that, I didn't even know we were really in that much of a predicament. It felt hairy. Like you're seeing waves like 20 feet away, smashing up on these rocks. You know that if the anchor goes, we in a we we're not in a good situation yet. But because yeah. of Matt's Matt's demeanor, I did it, it didn't really hit home at the time how dangerous this was. Because just because of you know, ignorance is bliss. Like I just <laughs> like, you know, so, but and and Matt looked really calm and he was like super calm. He was just drinking a cup of tea and I and I got a little piece to camera and he was like, Yeah, you know, basically this is really, you know, this is a bad situation, but you know, we're just gonna wait for the for the light of the morning. And he, he was doing the calculation in his head because these islands are uncharted, he, he didn't want to risk leaving this little bay and hitting a rock that you can't see because there's all these barely submerged rocks and it's dark. And you can't trust the charts because the charts aren't accurate. Nobody's taken the time to accurately do the charts. That's why it's uncharted. And so he was he had made the decision to wait until the morning, until we could see our way out, and then he was gonna go. But the problem was the boat was moving around, and if if we dragged the anchor, we would end up on the rock. So he was, even though he was calm, <laughs> I find he <laughs> he was basically just I only found really, I really sort of dawned on me about a year later when I did his interview. I did his master interview for the film, and we talked about that moment. And he started explaining about like what was going through his head. And then I realized like how bad it was and how scared I should have been. <laughs> um, but but that, that's also just says a lot about Matt though, because he is so calm. I've never seen him stress out. He never oh. makes people around him nervous. So I'm a lot he's... like that. I, I'm a lot <laughs> like that. And I, I will say, Good example. Right before my vasectomy, I took two, maybe three, out or not out of it, out of van, the the whatever the volume is. So yeah, basically that's what I need to get to Matland. And uh, one one of the things is that John is really good about is controlling my coffee intake on surf trips because you don't want to let that get out of hand. No, uh, because then I'll have heart palpitations uh, sitting on the toilet, and he'll have to calm me down from outside the door. It's not pretty. You, that's you, never happened. That's never be- happened, by the way. Yeah, never that's happened. Never- <laughs> no, it's, it's good to know. It's good to know. I think I've had too much coffee. Yeah. Oh my god, I can only imagine what I would have been like on that boat. Holy shit! And uh, yeah. there, there you were. That's yeah. epic, though. And I mean, I can relate to that. Um, 
that sort of uh, focus and calm um, when things are really bad. Um, that that's when you, uh, yeah, you do. You become kind of eerily calm and very decided about your actions because you understand that um, if you make the wrong one, it might be the last one. And uh, so, but yeah, it's, it is, uh, it is a pleasure to have somebody like that along on a trip like that, for sure. Yeah. Matt's got a mantra. I think it's something like um, panic. What is it? No, um, oh, panic. It's, stressed stress won't kill you but panic will something like that it's yeah it's how you react to a situation and often i think when you see it's not one situation that's it's 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 often um it's a domino effect so some one thing will go wrong and then it's how you react to that and it can set up a chain of events which can yeah. lead to like a really bad situation so it's about making clear decisions at the first at, at each opportunity before it, uh, it escalates into a big problem so um yeah, so I, mean, I remember thinking, I mean, I knew that, you know, I was, I, I was really sort of admiring of his style of kind of leadership. But I remember that at that situation, just going, wow, I can't believe how calm he is, you know. But then, and then finding, having the time afterwards, you know, even it was a year or more later when we could talk about that and he could sort of rationalize it. And also realizing he was beating himself up. He, he said, you know, he'd, he'd made a mistake, but he wasn't he he didn't put any uh fear or panic into anybody else in the boat so we, at the time he, he probably just knew we were all ignorant and we we're just like you know i was filming and going oh you know look at the explosions on the rocks <laughs> anyway, well some yeah. of that footage was fantastic too by the way i thought you did a good job of capturing and um his sailing in the in the rougher waters and you know in the night i just that stuff freaks me out. So, you know, I hear they're going around the world, but I mean, some of those two or three week sales are going to go through some really heavy duty water, I would imagine, with, uh, you know, without really good forecasting. And you know, there's not, you know, you've got a sat phone, but maybe that sat phone doesn't work. I mean, it, there's all shit, all kinds of shit that could go wrong on the, you know, on that trip. So many things. Um, so, so many things. They, they had a bit of a hairy situation, actually. Um, on, on one of the one of the passages from the UK to Portugal before one of our trips where they hit some uh, seriously rough patch of water just outside of Nazareth um they were coming into 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 the river mouth uh, by Lisbon which is for anybody that doesn't know that's like it's a two-hour drive from from Nazareth but it was off the canyon of Nazareth which is the the phenomenon that creates gigantic waves at the beach in Nazareth yeah and they hit a really nasty patch of weather there and in the night classic and came sailing down a wave and basically there was a there was um they hit they went straight into some white water so there was an, like an exploding piece of wave coming up at them they hit it and they broke i'm not sure what the technical term is but there's like a wooden gangplank at the front of the boat mm -hmm. their, their boat's a warren catamaran and it's got uh there's like a net in the front and it has this wooden gangplank and it snapped this thing it like bursted out uh, and this is also the thing that the anchor is attached to when it's not being used. So they had an anchor wow. flying around on a chain. Oh, night. I... And the, the funny thing about this, not funny, there wasn't that much funny about it, but um, 
it was just Matt and Suzanne uh, on the boat at, at this point. And um, and Suzanne, Matt was on watch. So so when Suzanne came up in the morning for her watch, I think the sun has come up and Matt was like, oh, yeah, you know, everything was fine. He didn't say anything. <laughs> he, he, he just said, okay, like I'm going to bed. Like I need some sleep. Obviously, when you, when you do a passage like that, everybody's, you know, you just, you're kind of like operating on fumes and, and and so he went to go down, down below to sleep. And at some point, Suzanne went to do a little inspection on the front of the boat. She saw this gigantic hole <laughs> in the boat. <laughs> and, and, and but wow. Matt had, didn't want to tell Suzanne because he didn't want to freak her out. But he, you know, she she did see it. And um, because she when she came up for her watch, she said, she said, like, what happened? And it sounded like, you know, it was really rough. And he he, he just played it down. I was like, ah, oh, you know. Yeah. Not, nothing really, but he had obviously he had dealt with it and he had tied up the anchor and made it secure and all of that, but he didn't want to freak out. It was only on when she'd gone for her own little look at the front of the boat and was just like, oh, holy shit. Like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> what man. a stud. This guy's a stud. <laughs> I don't know if it's the same on a catamaran, but I think that is called the pulpit. Um, like where like a preacher would stand, like a pulpit in a church. Because okay. you kind of stand in that. It has like the railing around it. I believe that's what it's called. Don't. Oh uh, no, it's not. It's not the same thing. I know exactly not. what you're talking about. Yeah, no, it's not okay. the same thing. But something that's interesting about that design. So their boat is a Warham catamaran, and James Warham he's only just recently died. I think it like he's about ninety eight or something. He's a legendary designer, and and their boat, their that, that catamaran is a direct descendant. The design is taken from the Polynesian um, style of basically uh. was two canoes tied together. Yeah, no kidding. And and that's that's what they used to sort of colonize the Pacific. That's how they traveled from Hawaii to Tahiti and all of that. So, so James Warham saw that as a really functional design, and he's kind of modernized it. But the whole thing about a Warham catamaran is that it's it's still basically two canoes tied together. Huh. And the beauty the beauty of that. So on their one, I think they 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 vary a bit, but on their one, I think there's four cross beams that tie these two canoes together. And so there's no hard fixing. So what this boat does, it's all it's all lashed together. So it actually moves and absorbs the the motion of the sea. And so wow. when they had that when they had that situation where it blew out this 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 gangplank thing, they were able to basically pull untie the boat and just pull that damaged piece out and 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 re replace it and retie it in. It's this whole this whole thing is just it's they they designed that. Anybody should be able to put one of these catamarans together on the beach. They're designed to be sort of low tech. Wow. And as much of that like ancient boat building craft has been carried over from the from those like early Polynesian days. So it's a special kind of um it's you know, people people swear by them. And they're just they're amazing boats as well because of this their space and their size and all of that. And you know, and, and I think Matt Matt's one, you know, Matt and Suzanne's one's really special. But I guess I'll just say that we've had such amazing experiences with it, but it's it is a special design and it is a special boat. Yeah, that's so oh, cool. Our... There's like three more movies you got to make about the Knight family. Yeah, no like. kidding, obviously. <laughs> well, I, I got I got to do the ones about the children next because they're yeah. amazing humans as well, and I, I spend a lot of time with Taz Knight. That's, that's how I met them, really. So when I was working at that surf shop I mentioned, yeah, um, I used to uh, I so I used to surf every day before work. And um and and we'd get up early and I'd always see this father and son like you know out in the water and so this was Matt and Taz okay so 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 Taz is the son and and what what I always like struck struck me about them is that they'd always be out in waves where you wouldn't see other kids at the time Taz was about uh, 10, 11, 12. 
Okay. And and he'd be out in some serious waves, you know, that you wouldn't see other kids his age out in. And he always wore this little white helmet and he always had this like scruffy old wetsuit and whatever. And but he would be out there charging and going for it. And Matt would be like calling him into waves. And when he'd go over the falls, Matt would laugh at him and they would just shake it off. And <laughs> and I was, I remember one day um seeing Taz, like it was like he Taz was paddling back towards the beach. It, like he had really been surfing and he was like, it was time to go home, and he was paddling for the beach. And I was paddling out and he was coming in and, and he, he was turning around. He was shouting for his dad to come in. And, and Matt was just like, no, one more wave, one more wave. And it was Taz was shouting, no, I'm going to get to school. You don't know how cool your dad is. He's the one paddling out for one more wave. And you're the one shouting, I'm going to get to school. Oh, that's and, epic. And then, um, and then actually they came in the surf shop one day. I hadn't re- I just used to see them in the sea. And then they came in the surf shop one day. Taz was starting to compete as a grom. And um and they, he was looking for sponsorship for wetsuits or something and I was like yeah we I could I could help him out through through the shop he he was like the first grom we sponsored nice but but I I also said to him like I don't I don't want to just see you like every few months when I'm going to give you a free wetsuit like I want you to like come and hang out and you know come sweep the floors or something every now and then and he was super diligent with, with us like he would come like every week there was like one afternoon he'd come in his school uniform like what can I do what can I do and um. And uh, and and the one day that he came, like I think I'd just come back from a, a surf trip to Mexico or something, and I was showing him some photos, and he was like, "Oh, I know that beach. I learned to surf on that beach." And then I was like, "Oh, really?" What? And he was, yeah. And then and then he started telling me the story about this family trip that they'd done, where the, where where uh, Matt and Suzanne had bought this old RV and they travelled like from San Francisco all the way down to costa rica or something they took a year oh they took all, there's four kids they took the kids out of school and they spent a year in this rv and um and she so started telling me these wild stories and that was the first time i was like whoa okay this kid like you, you've been doing some different stuff and that was actually my first like sort of encounter with the knights and then quickly met the rest of the family and went, we went that's, from there that's cool man i i think taz is such a good plays a good uh role in the documentary as well with his surfing too, I think there's some really beautiful waves you caught. Uh, you know, I'm not going to give anything away, and uh, there's just one big wide open barrel. I think that's him kind of cruising out of nice and slow. Maybe was that him? In that yeah, that's him. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a really good surfer, um, and and just just so humble about it. Like he's living in Ireland now. He bought this wreck of a house. It's in the film. Um, I saw that in Bandoran, no? Yeah. In Bandoran, yeah. He bought this thing that I think it had been deserted for 25 years and he he paid very little for it, but it, it like needs so much work and he's taking it on, but he's living in Ireland. He's fixing up his house and he's just charging the craziest barrels. And like like a lot of those Irish crew, they're just super humble. They're doing it without fanfare. They're just going out there and just charging mental waves and just doing it just in a really like, you know, low-key style and Taz has just slipped right in there with all those boys and just 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 going for it so yeah I, yeah big fan that, of, it sounds like you and filmmaking uh you charge and uh you've done a great job on savage waters we can't wait to share it with our fans we didn't want to give away too much in this podcast but certainly a background on Mikey and uh where you've uh developed your your skills and and that's something you're going to be able to see on the screen on February 4th in New Smyrna Beach. And if you hear this podcast after that, um, look for it on Outside TV's app at some point in the near future. And then, uh, yeah, but it, you're going to get to meet Mikey in person with uh, with the screening on the 4th and ask him questions, listen to the Q&A. And um, that'll, be, uh, that'll be a special night, I think. And I had 
uh, one more thing to to add to that, and I've completely blanked, Mikey, on my last comment. But if I think about it, I'll come back to it. And um, in the meantime, I just want to say, what what time is it where you're at in Lisbon? It's um, quarter past ten at night. Or are you actually in Lisbon? I'm in Nazare. You're in Nazare. Are you living there now? No, I, I sort of I'm spending my like winters out here. Fair enough. So yeah. I've got the nice. whole family out here. My kids aren't in school yet, but we just we've been fortunate enough through work, you know, projects. I've been shooting on the hundred foot wave the last few seasons. I had another documentary this winter, so it's it's sort of like the big wave epicenter of Europe, and and we just love mm -hmm. it. My wife was actually is Portuguese. She grew up in South Africa, but she's got a Portuguese passport. And we we just love being here, and it's a really good sort of place for the family at the moment. So. We're trying to trying to just actually the, the the documentary I came out for ended around Christmas, but I've just <laughs> can't leave. Just really I don't like blame it. you. Nice, I've heard great nice. things, and you know you've stayed up late. You've uh, you've done your duty here tonight to pay your uh, your tri tribute to your own work and uh, promote it. So uh, we're just really thrilled to have you on last minute. You know, get you on the podcast, and we'll uh, we'll see you in person soon enough and celebrate. Yeah, it's been it's been an absolute pleasure, Mikey, and we can't wait to have you over and uh, have our local surf community here get to meet you and hang out. And uh, hopefully, we'll have a little wave. We can uh, get out and get in the ocean. And you ever you ever surfed in Florida before? No, I've never actually been to the East Coast. Oh, it's a lot like oh wonderful! All right, so, yeah, Nazareth. yeah, it's I a lot like I a tiny Nazareth. <laughs> I can't wait. So thank you so much for having me. It's, I mean, it's been a real pleasure. And I really, I can't wait to be there in person. So thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll see you, you in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I'll pick perfect. You I'll pick you up at the airport with uh, with either John and our creative director, Tommy. We'll take you to a nice dinner. Amazing. Thank you so yeah. much. Cheers, right. man. Cheers, right. We'll see you Thanks, soon. Guys. Take care. Right. Ciao, ciao. Bye, What a pleasure to chat to Mikey and can't wait to see him in a week and a half. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. This is going to be a special one. It's a one-nighter. We haven't done a one-nighter in a while. It's been a minute. Which is nice. I think he gives you uh, and, and everybody just a chance to come out, enjoy that one night, and then in June, maybe we'll ramp back up to two nights, you know? Yeah, we usually do two-nighter in June for Father's Day weekend. Um, but yeah, I'm excited about it. You know what we what else we got going that night is Jessica and Jay Johnson are flying out from Los Angeles. Uh, they're they're actually based in San Clemente. They do all of the production for the International Surfing uh, Association, Association yeah. and they made this movie called The Impossible Wave. Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's about Fernando Aguirre, um, who started Reef Sandals with his brother, and then they sold it, and then he went on a twenty seven year mission to get surfing into the Olympics which, as you know, he succeeded in this most recent Olympics. It's a phenomenal story. I can't believe that there hasn't been a little more press about it, to be honest, but I'm excited to show it. And, uh, yeah, we're stoked to have Jessica and Jay out to uh, present their film and do a little Q&A afterwards. So, yeah, I'm excited. yeah it's going to be a great night. Yeah, the, the best part about that story is that uh, – we're going to end up at Chopu for the Olympics or yes. Te Hopo'o. Te Hopo'o. Yeah. It sounds like we're, <laughs> we're mocking now. I think, I think we No, should. not mocking at all. No, but you know what I mean? It's, it's like, just a difficult word to say. It's the way you have to say it. And it's 100%. like, 100%. I am fully equipped to pronounce words 
properly, but it's a tough one. Yeah, it is. I was practicing when you came into the <laughs> it was funny. office and uh, <laughs> I nailed it. I think yeah, I nailed it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's going to be a special treat to see the Olympics go down at that wave. I think so, too. These guys are uh, equipped. Most of the guys on the WSL, all the guys on the WSL are equipped to handle that wave. Yeah. But there are some guys from different countries that are going to find it challenging to get into that wave, period. Yes. Yes. I mean, as if the Olympics wasn't scary enough. (laughs) I know. We talk about viewers and ratings. Yeah. I think we'll probably crush it because a a little healthy competition never hurt anybody. I'm not a purist when it comes to this uh, activity we do, but that on the world stage and in front of more viewers than surfing will have ever had in its history. Oh, absolutely. uh, The premier wave is going (laughs) to be no joke. Yeah. Yeah. The heaviest wave, too. Can't wait. All right, so that'll be cool. The movie itself is phenomenal. I really enjoyed experiencing that journey with those guys. And and uh, we have a couple other shorts coming, one by uh, Ben Sturgalewski. He made a movie called Creation Theory. Mm-hmm. That is going to be up front on our roster that night. We might have a couple shorts before that or one yeah, short. And then Tim McKenna's film, also about Teahopo. Yeah, the sound of uh, Teahopo. Yeah, so cool. A little three-minute short. It's wonderful. Um, just remind you like when you're on a tropical surf trip of all the, those ambient noises that you forget about as soon as you get back into the city and yeah. traffic and cars and you could close your eyes for that movie, but you don't want to. Yeah. Nah. It's just visually stunning too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think Apple, uh, in their Apple TV, I think they used a clip from him I think to, so. for their screensaver. I oh, think so. I'm not kidding. I hope my man got paid for that. Yeah. No shit. <laughs> All right, well, anything else for... uh, We want to thank some new sponsors. Yeah, we got some new sponsors coming on board for year 10. We should talk about that, too. I mean, mean, kudos to you. High five me, Kevin. High five you. 10 years, man. Yeah, we we both have... uh, You know, we've been through all of it, and just what the most fun is to see people like Sunbum and Josh the lawyer dude. Yeah. uh, Vasileros Wagner up in Daytona Beach. Uh, They're your personal injury people. Yeah, absolutely. Joss is a legend. If you surf around here, you've seen him in the water. Big Gosh. burly beards, great surfer. Spends a lot of time down in Nicaragua as well. Amazing upper body strength. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what my wife told me on our first date. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but yeah, we're stoked to have Josh on board and have his support. And uh, and then Sunbomb, yeah. At this point, probably the biggest yeah. sun protection brand on the planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They. It was weird. Uh, I mean... We, we had uh, a great run with them giving some gift back, you know, early support. Yeah. And then uh, we went out to visit Taylor Steele's festival and fireworks. I mean, they came on board with Gusto. Dustin Beauchard's been our, yeah. our uh, biggest fan. Yeah. So. Dusty's the man. So can't wait to have those guys here and uh, for you guys to get to see all the, some fun new stuff from Sunbum. And uh, Rourke Revival all back on board for year five, I want to say. And then... Yep. Monster Energy back on board, Yeti back on board. There's like uh, Dragon Sunglasses. Yeah, Dragon. This has been a great show of support for what we're trying to do here. And we want to thank you guys on the air. Absolutely. All right, that's it. We'll uh, see you guys on February 4th. Cheers.